At that time, Joshua summoned the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh and said to them, You have kept all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you and have obeyed my voice in all that I have commanded you. You have not forsaken your brothers these many days down to this day, but have been careful to keep the charge of the Lord your God. And now the Lord your God has given rest to your brothers as he promised. Therefore, turn and go to your tents in the land where your possession lies, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you on the other side of the Jordan. Only be careful to observe the commandment and the law that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you to love the Lord your God and to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments and to cling to him and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. So Joshua blessed them and sent them away and they went to their tents. And when they came to the region of the Jordan that is in the land of of Canaan, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh built there an altar by the Jordan, an altar of imposing size. And the people of Israel heard it said, Behold, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh have built the altar at the frontier of the land of Canaan in the region about the Jordan on the side that belongs to the people of Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, the whole assembly of the people of Israel gathered at Shiloh to make war against them. Well, that reaction kind of reminds me of the church that I first preached in. I think it was the second sermon I ever preached as a teenager. And they had shingles of different color, uh, red and green, red on one part, green on the other, uh, because they'd had a church split over the colors of the shingles. And they were not unified. In fact, there was a third group that wanted black shingles that left and started a second church. And the remaining part uh, compromised. Unity is a, is a tough thing to, to receive and, and experience in church. So we come to this passage this morning. And it speaks about the tension of unity. Now, we are starting this week in the very last portion of the book of Joshua. And so now that we're near the end, I'm going to give you an outline. Okay, so those of you who like outlines and notes of a book, you might want to take a picture of this. This breaks the book up into different sections that show you. We've gone through those first three sections, and this morning we start and we will have two more messages, uh, and then we will be done with the book of Joshua. Now, I actually like my outlines even simpler because I'm a simple guy. I like like one word outline. So if I were creating an outline, I would say, you know, like uh, ver- uh, chapters uh, 1 to 12 are conquest. One word, right? Conquest. And chapters 13 to 21 are inheritance. And chapters 22 and 24 are goodbye. That's it. Okay? That's your simple outline uh, for the book of Joshua. And so this morning, we start in, a, in the goodbye portion. Now, let me ask you a question. Until you heard it read just now by Andrea, how many of you were like very familiar with with what was said, the story here and the response? If you, I mean, if you were familiar, in fact, if you know how this story ends, you haven't just peaked ahead of time. Before you came here this morning, you know how this story ends and you were familiar with it. I want you to raise your hand. Okay. So there's like 10 people out of the entire congregation. So 
Good. So you have something to look forward to. You're going to know it by the end of this morning. Um, this passage has a lot to say to us about unity. It's an obscure passage, but what it says about unity and the tension of unity among God's people is very practical and very necessary if we're to maintain unity in our own church. So let's start with these opening verses as we look at Joshua's commendation of the people. Just to set the context, for those of you maybe who haven't been here the last couple of weeks, or maybe this is your first Sunday, we're glad to have you with us. We've been in this book. This is the story of Israel as it left the, uh, Egypt. They had their wilderness wanderings for 40 years where the, the unfaithful generation died out, and now they come into the promised land finally. We're at the portion where the promised land has been divided up by tribe. There's 12 tribes, and you'll notice on the Jordan River, on the eastern side, two and a half tribes decided to settle there. Years before, they had gone to Moses while they were in that 40-year period, and the older generation was dying out, and they said, you know what? We kind of like this area. You know, we could live here. Would it be okay if we were to just stay on this side of the Jordan River, and this be our inheritance? And and Moses said, that's fine, but you have to come in. We have send your soldiers when, with the other tribes and help conquer the promised land. And so what's happening here in Joshua 22 is the soldiers of these two and a half tribes are being commended by Joshua. He says, well done, guys. Thank you. You, you, you obeyed God. You obeyed the commands of Moses. And in fact, all through this campaign, you've obeyed my commands. I mean, they have been fighting now for somewhere between seven and 10 years. They've been away from their homes, carrying out warfare, conquering this, this land. And he's commending them. It's kind of interesting. After he praises them, though, he exhorts them. By the way, just as a side note, parents, that's a great model with your children. Before you exhort and command, first try to praise. I know that can be difficult sometimes, but if you can, it's, it's awfully good. But, but he begins to commend them. And in verse 8, we didn't read it. It's kind of interesting. It makes me chuckle. He commends them, and he exhorts, and he says, Now listen, you guys have made a lot of money. You've got a lot of spoils of war, and you're going home with all these spoils of war. And he commands them. He goes, Now share the spoils of war with the guys who couldn't come, who had to stay and protect the home front. I just thought it was interesting that he has to exhort them to share in the spoils of war. But his main exhortation is in verse 5. And it's an important exhortation for them and for us. He says, now, you're going to go with your possessions. Only be very careful to observe the commandment and the law that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you. To love the Lord your God and to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments and to cling to him and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. In his exhortation... Uh, Joshua points them back to the Shema. This is that great statement that is such a vital part of the Old Covenant that you find in Deuteronomy. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your uh, soul and with all your might. It's interesting, I think, to see that in the Old Covenant, Israelite obedience to the law, just like uh, our discipleship, just like our pursuit of sanctification within the new covenant, was not supposed to be some legalistic, wooden, robotic form of obedience. Their response 
like our response, is supposed to be a love response to our Lord's person and work. Beginning in September, for the entire ministry year, we are going to be in the book of Luke. In fact, we may be in the book of Luke this ministry year, and it's such a big book, we may, it may bleed over into the next. I don't know yet. I'm working on that, okay? I don't want to get, get, have you have Luke fatigue, so we'll figure it out. Um, but it's interesting how in the book of Luke, what you see over and over again is the fallen condition of humanity on full display, where humans come, can repeatedly attempt to relate to God through their own performance. It's a, a transactional relationship, a quid pro quo type relationship. I do for God, therefore I get from God. And, and that mentality is on full display within the book of Luke. By the way, that mentality is what runs most people and their pursuit of God in their spiritual lives. It's transactional with God. One day, Jesus has a Pharisee come to him who's also a lawyer. What a, what a mix that must have been. And, uh, and so this guy is trying to trap Jesus. He's testing him, and he, he asks him, you know, how can he have uh, eternal life? And, and it's clear that he epitomized this uh, you know, transactional approach to God. He does, therefore he gets. And, and Jesus responds by saying, well, what does the law tell you, and he's pointing them back to the Shema again. And we see this in Luke chapter 10, and the guy quotes the Shema, that I'm to love the Lord my God with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength, and my neighbor as myself. And in verse 28, Jesus says to him, you've answered correctly, do this and you will live. And that right there is the issue, isn't it? Because none of us can do it. None of us love the Lord our God with all of our hearts, mind, soul and strength. None of us love our neighbor as ourself. This is why the gospel is such good news for us, because Jesus stood in our place and did what we could not do. He perfectly loved God with all of his heart, mind, soul, and strength, and then he proved that he loved his neighbor more than himself by getting on a cross and dying for us and for our sins. And because of this, because of Jesus and his life in us through his spirit, we can now obey God, not with a transactional quid pro quo motivation, but out of a posture of love and gratitude instead. This is how God has always wanted his people to live towards him, both in the old covenant and the new covenant, that we love and worship and serve him because of who he is and what he has done on our behalf. So this chapter starts out on a high note, Joshua's commendation, but then it kind of gets dark. We see Israel's concern in verses 9 to 33. Now, we did not read most of these verses. We're going to read a few of them here in a, in a couple of moments, but just to help kind of organize these 25 verses, again, for those of you who like to take notes, I went back to my heritage and I alliterated it for you. There you go. This is how we're going to break these 25 verses apart. And what, where we begin in verses 9 and 10, we, we see the reason for their anxiety. In verse 10, Here's these eastern tribes, they're on their way home, and before they go down and cross the Jordan River and go into their land, they stop, and verse 10 says, they build an altar of imposing size. In other words, they build a huge altar. 
Now, the, the author, he's building suspense in the story, like any good storyteller does. He does not tell us why they build the altar yet, and nor does he tell us why the reaction of the community seems to be so over the top. I mean, when the Israelites hear about this altar, they call the soldiers back. They gather at Shiloh and say, we got to go kill these guys. We got to go to war against our brothers on the eastern side. It's interesting as you, as you look at this passage and you think about why, what is going on here? Why is there such a strong reaction? Through the, through the centuries, uh, even in modern days, many commenters and scholars and, and whatnot will say this, this reaction is unwarranted. This is sinful. This is just fleshly, you know, ungodly behavior. But I think the issue here is they don't understand what has happened or they're not acknowledging what has happened in the life of Israel this is not necessarily a, a, a sinful overreaction. This is a reaction that's based upon their past experiences at two places, Shatim and Ai. Remember Ai with Achan? We looked at that like, you know, 20 years ago or however long it's been since we've been in Joshua. And you remember that story of Ai and Achan? How uh, Achan was a soldier, and when they defeated Jericho and the walls fell down, he went in and he gathered some goods, gold, silver, nice clothes, and, uh, and he stole them. And the problem was everything that was supposed to be in Jericho was to be given to God and the temple. God had decreed it for that one city. And so he steals things, and he hides it. And as a result, a few weeks later, when the Israelites go to a much smaller city, Ai, they suffer a painful, tragic defeat. Several dozen of their men are killed, and it's all because of God's judgment upon them because of the, the accursed thing that had been taken and hidden by Achan. One man's sin affected the entire nation. And in even worse was what happened at Shittim. Now, we, we talked about Shittim in Joshua chapter 1 back last September. This is where the Israelites lived in that region for many years as the older generation died out. They had conquered these cities. It was the, the land of Moab, and the Midianites lived there. And the Midianites, they worshipped a false god by the name of Baal, Baal Peor, also known as Chemosh. And Baal is all throughout the Old Testament, if you're familiar with the Old Testament at all. And, and so the Midianites, they begin to interact with the Jewish men, and specifically the Jewish men are looking at some of the Midianite women, and they like what they see. And they begin to marry the Midianite women, and as a result, they also begin to worship the God of these Midianite women, Baal Peor. God is outraged. He sends a plague. Most people believe it was a, a form of the bubonic plague. 24,000 Israelites are now dead and when Moses and realized what's going on, he takes the ringleaders of these people who are apostatizing and worshiping them, and he ends up executing several hundred leaders of the people. The, 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 the acts are so brazen that one day, Moses and the high priest Eleazar and his son Phineas are there, and they're, you know, they're talking about the stock market. I don't know what they're talking about, but they're talking, and here comes a Jewish man, and he's leading a Midianite woman by the hand into his tent and into his bedchamber. You see, in the worship of that false god, their priests would taught 
that the way you lifted the punishment of God and got his blessings again is that you made a worship of sacrifice and you sealed that worship with a sexual liaison. And so here is Phineas. He sees this Jewish man brazenly, blatantly taking this woman into his tent. He goes and he grabs a spear. He runs into their tent and he spears him all the way through the chest and body and then into her chest and body and kills them both. And God says, good job. And he lifts the plague. Okay? And I say, what does that have to do with this altar? The Israelites understand that this altar would be a similar offense and could provoke God's judgment. You see, we read this in Deuteronomy 12. In Deuteronomy 12, God tells the Israelites, listen, you're not going to worship me the way Baal is worshipped. I don't want altars in the high places and up in the mountains where everybody goes and does their own thing and worships me. We're going to have one altar at one place that I designate. And so in Deuteronomy 12, we read his word. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. But you shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes to put his name and make his habitation there. There you shall go. You shall not do according to all that we are doing here today, everyone doing whatever is right in his own eyes. Take care that you do not offer your burnt offerings at any place that you see, but at the place that the Lord will choose in one of your tribes where you shall offer your burnt offerings, and there you shall do all that I am commanding you. And that place had been designated. That place was Shiloh. And the tabernacle was set up there, and the people were supposed to come here, and they were to worship there. And so in this passage, the Israelites see this altar as a place of false worship. And it's a substitute for the true worship that's supposed to take place at Shiloh. And if they permit this false worship to perish or to flourish, then they endanger their own lives. They remember what happened at Shittim when they sat by the sidelines and allowed that false worship. The plague hit, 24,000 people die, and God is righteous in his judgment. So what's actually happening here is not an overreaction, but a demonstration of their holy jealousy for God's glory. Their reaction is actually a commendation in one sense. They are more concerned for the glory and the worship of God than they are their their relationships with their brothers in the eastern tribes. As painful as it would be, they're going to obey God first. Francis Schaeffer wrote many years ago, I would to God that the church of the 20th century would learn this lesson. He's talking about Joshua 22. The holiness of the God who exists demands that there be no compromise in the area of truth. Tears? I'm sure there were tears, but there had to be battle if there was rebellion against God. He's he's picking up on something. There's no hint in this passage that the Western tribes were delighted in what was about to happen. There's no hint that they were thrilled about going to war. Let's, I mean, I think we all recognize that there is a bond that exists, a, a, a deep bond that exists between the men and women who put themselves on the line for our safety and for our freedom. Our, our law enforcement officers, 
uh, our soldiers and sailors, people who have been in war and served together, there is a special bond between that group of individuals. These soldiers from the Western tribes, they had bled with these men. They had fought for seven, eight, and 10 years side by side. In fact, these tribes normally led the way into battle. They were the front of the spear. And now they're looking at having to go to war with them. There's no delight here. In fact, you can imagine there's great sorrow actually going on. So we see the reason for their anxiety and their reaction to the altar. But let's also note in verses 13 to 20, the righteous approach. They don't just run to war. Thankfully, in verses 13 to 15, that very same Phineas, the dude with the spear, right? He is tapped to lead a delegation one leader from each of the tribes, and they go, and they cross the Jordan River, and they go into the land of the eastern tribes, and they speak to them, and they are very direct in their communication. When you look at verses 16 to 18, they said, they said this, thus says the whole congregation of the Lord, what is this breach of faith that you have committed against the God of Israel in turning away this day from following the Lord? Have you not had enough of the sin at Peor from which even yet we've not cleansed ourselves? And he continues to say, guys, what are you doing? We face the wrath of God. They're very direct in their communication. But at the same time, they exhibit a sense of humility, deep concern for their brothers. And, and they, they, kind of, they kind of do it in a way where they're assuming, hey, something else has to be going on here. This just doesn't compute. What's going on? And so verses 19 and 20, you actually read where they say, is, is your inheritance not working out for you? You thought the eastern side was going to be good, but now you realize that you should have come on across the river and been in the promised land. If, if, that's, what, if that's what this is all about, listen. And they had all the tribal leaders we will carve out portions of our inheritance so that you can now come over and you can be on the western side and you can enjoy the promised land as we are enjoying it. That's what's at play here. We're more than happy to give up our land. Do you catch that posture of peacemaking? They're, they're assuming there's got to be something going on here. This doesn't make sense. Why are you doing it? Oh, oh is it that, you, that your inheritance? Ew, you don't have good land after all? We can fix that. We can fix all this so that we don't have to go to war. There's a deep concern here for them. And they approach their brothers with a sense of righteous humility and love and support. Well, the response in verses 21 to 29 from the accused take this story in a different direction. Then the people of Reuben, the people of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh said in answer to the heads of the families of Israel, the mighty one, God, the Lord, the mighty one, God, the Lord. They repeat it twice. Twice they are swearing on the three names of God, El, Elohim, and Yahweh, which is translated the mighty one, God, the Lord. He knows, and let Israel itself know. They, they, they are affirming right out of the gate. Guys, we too are worshiping the same God you're worshiping. And he knows that let Israel itself know if it was in rebellion or in breach of faith against the Lord, do not spare us today for building an altar to turn away from following the Lord. Or if we did so to offer burnt offerings 
or grain offerings or peace offerings on it, may the Lord himself take vengeance. So they hear the very blunt talk, guys, what are you doing? I mean, this is like what happened at Shittim. We're going to be judged and because of this altar that you have built, this place for false worship. And their response was, if what you guys say of us is true, we deserve everything that you've mentioned. We deserve to be wiped out by you all. Absolutely. And in that response is important for us to note. Okay? How do you respond when somebody maybe perhaps comes to you and there's an accusation or there's an insinuation that you've done something that is not correct, it's out of line, maybe it's sinful, how do you typically respond? I know for many of us, our first response is maybe defensiveness or moral outrage. I mean, these guys know why they built the altar. And then he could have said, how dare you think that about us? I mean, we've just fought with you for 10 years. And now you think that us, all of us, they could have just lit into them, couldn't they? In fact, how many of us, when somebody maybe says something and they can, our first reaction when punched is to do what? Punch back. But they don't do this here. There's no defensiveness. There's no personal outrage. There's certainly no victim mentality. Instead, they affirm, <coughs> excuse me, we too are jealous for the worship and glory of God. And so in verse 24, we find out why. No, we did it from fear that in time to come, your children might say to our children, what have you to do with the Lord, the God of Israel? So they go on to explain their concern. Their concern is that the geography of the area is going to ultimately create two different nations and that their grandchildren and great-grandchildren in the future will be discriminated against and not allowed to come back into the land and worship at the temple. And, so, and, and it's hard for us to understand this because, I mean, we can drive from one end of Israel to the other in about an hour, hour and a half. But back in that day, let's remember, they didn't have a bridge across the Jordan Valley Rift. You, you understand that the Jordan Valley Rift goes for, I think it's like 1,400 miles, and there's thousands of feet between the bottom and the top. We kind of talked about that a while back with one of the battles that took place. You remember when the sun stood still? I mean, this is a deep canyon, Think of it like, like the Grand Canyon, something along those lines. Imagine if back in the day, I mean, before transportation and everything was basically by foot, you lived on one side of the Grand Canyon and people lived on the other side of the Grand Canyon, the big part, not where it gets narrow. How much interaction are you going to have between the two groups back in that day? Not much at all. And so their fear is actually kind of reasonable. And, and what it comes down to is they explain that their fear is that in the future, the, the great-grandchildren of the western tribes will prohibit the great-grandchildren of the eastern tribes from coming over and worshiping. And so far from rebelling against God, they are actually jealous for the worship of God and the glory of God. And at the same time, they are jealous for the spiritual allegiance of their children and their grandchildren and great-grandchildren that it may also be for God. That was their motivation. So verse 28 we thought if this should be said to us or to our descendants in time to come, 
we should say, Behold, the copy of the altar of the Lord, which our fathers made, not for burnt offerings, nor for sacrifice, but to be a witness between us and you. Far be it from us that we should rebel against the Lord and turn away this day from following the Lord by building an altar for burnt offerings, grain offering, or sacrifice other than the altar of the Lord our God that stands before his tabernacle. Can you imagine being uh, Phineas and those men when they heard the explanation? Whew! <laughs> they go back, and the next verses say they go back. In fact, it's very quick. <clears throat> it's, like, it's almost like Phineas looks at them and does the Rosanna Odana. Oh, never mind. And, uh, and they leave. They just leave, right? It's very quickly. They leave, and they come back to the Israelites, and they say, false alarm. Everything's good, guys. And explain, and the people, of course, rejoice about what's happening there. So this chapter starts on a high note with Joshua's commendation, and then it kind of descends with Israel's concern, but then it ends again with a high note in the final verse where there is this unifying confession from the people. The people of Reuben and the people of Gad called that altar witness, for they said, it is a witness between us that the Lord is God. In that, in that confession, church, we find an important gospel application for unity within God's people. A, a, God's people, as God's people, here, let me just give you a point here. As God's people, the right foundation for unity is a passion for his glory expressed through the faithful worship and obedience of Jesus our Lord. Their unity was built around their confession of God's truth. The Lord is God. That's Shema. That's that unifying declaration. And, and as we see in the New Covenant, our unity starts with the same confession of God's truth. In, in the Old Covenant, we know it as the Shema. In the New Covenant, we have an even better understanding of the person and the work of God. So Paul says in Romans chapter 10, verse 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. To the Corinthians, who were all kinds of fragmented, who needed unity. He tells them in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 3, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Unity starts with this declaration of Jesus is Lord. And so if you're here this morning and you want to be unified to the family of God, not just covenant church, but the eternal family of God that, that goes back to the beginning and will extend unto eternity. If you want to be a part of that family, it starts by you believing in your heart that Jesus is Lord and making that confession the central point of your life, that Jesus becomes your Lord and your Savior. That happens when you begin to understand you do not relate to God in a transactional manner. You don't earn God's favor. You don't earn God's forgiveness. You don't earn God's glory. It is a gift given to you because Jesus stood in our place on the cross. And so I want to encourage those of you who've not yet 
surrendered your life to Christ, uh, at the close of the service, stop by our care area. We have Stephen ministers. Come see me, and let's set up a time to meet in private, and let's talk about your relationship with Christ and how he can be your Lord and your Savior even today or this week if you so desire. Our unity starts with the very same confession. Old covenant, new covenant, it's the same. The Lord is God. Jesus is Lord. But unlike Israel, we don't have an altar, a physical altar of witness. But our unity as a church can be a witness of God's greatness if three things remain true about covenant church, which are true today, I believe. We've... I guess we are building a big building. Some could say that's a testimony, and it is. It is a witness of God's faithfulness and his glory. But even greater than a building is the people. The church building is a building. It's a facility. It facilitates ministry of the people and to the people centered around our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's don't forget that. Paul tells the Ephesians that he was concerned about their unity, And he says some things to them in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. Things that I think are true about us right now, have been for several years now. Uh, We've been enjoying, uh, I think, just a season of unity for several years now. And it's been wonderful. It's been peace in our church. And you sense it in the worship, the way we were. And by the way, unity does not mean unanimity. It doesn't mean just everybody agrees on every issue and... And it's this lockstep robotic thought. It's not groupthink. Unity allows for disagreements on an issue or on a matter. And we've experienced that as a church. And we've navigated those issues and we still like each other. Or we fake it pretty well. I don't know. But no, no, I think we do like each other. And we're unified. And the reason is because of what you see in Ephesians chapter 4. I therefore... Paul says, a prisoner of the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. If we are going to remain unified, church, the very first thing we need to understand is that we exist to glorify God and how we worship him and how we live our lives, both in this church as a body and outside in this world. And I think overall, as a church, yes, We embrace this truth, this gospel application that we do not exist for our own pleasure. We exist in order to glorify God and to live for him. Then he continues in verse 2, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So first is that idea of existing to glorify God. And then he goes on and he says, for there to be unity... We have to live out of the love of Jesus Christ and live out the love of Jesus Christ to our brothers and our sisters and our broken world. Jesus in John chapter 13 will say, here's how all men know that you are my disciples by how you love one another. And one of the reasons why I believe we've enjoyed such a great season of unity in our church is because I can see example after example after example after example of our people loving one another and loving people who are outside the walls of our church. And if that will continue, 
If we continue to live and exist, <clears throat> excuse me, to glorify God and love one another as Jesus has loved us and doing it out of his love and power, our unity will not only remain, it will grow stronger and stronger. And then finally, we see there is one body, one spirit. Just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. There is a third component to that unity. We understand that we exist to glorify God and we live that out. We love one another and we, we experience that out of the love of Jesus for us. But then finally, we hold firmly to the truth of the gospel and we proclaim it as it is given in God's word to our broken world, to our sins fallen world, we do not compromise on the truth of the gospel and God's word. These are the conditions for unity. I think that's why we have had such a great season of unity. Hasn't always been easy. We've navigated difficulties and challenges, but those three things are in place in our church. I'm so thankful for that. Now, my prayer is we've built this, we're building this beautiful facility. It is going to be there for our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren, just like that altar was. My prayer is not necessarily even, I mean, it is, but my prayer is that the unity that we enjoy right now will continue, and most importantly, that that will be the reality of the future generations who worship at Covenant Church. Amen? Amen. Amen. Lord Jesus, we thank you. you. You've brought us through trials and tribulations as a church. You have purified us. You have sanctified us. I thank you for all of those moments. They have contributed to our unity. I thank you for these brothers and sisters in Christ. What a delight it is to worship you side by side with men and women and young people and children like this. Lord, we ask that you would continue to grow our unity. May it be based upon our dedication to glorifying you in our lives and in our worship as individuals and as a church. May it be based and built upon our true love for one another that is a reflection of your love for us, empowered by you. And Lord, give us a boldness to stand strong the truth of the gospel, to proclaim it winsomely and graciously to this world that is so broken by sin. Lord, would you use us in that way and continue to unify us around you. For with one voice we proclaim, you, Lord, you, Jesus, are Lord. Amen.